Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. more tenuous celebrity name dropping for you Lorraine I don't like this you've taken over my my name dropping I know but this is celebrities at a distance but still very exciting this I'm calling this stars in their cars in Wandsworth <laughs> in Wandsworth down south stars that I have spotted I'm going to start with Mo Farah in his Bentley on the Wandsworth one-way system. Right. What do you make of that? <laughs> I, I like to think of Mo Farah running everywhere really fast like the Flash, so that's disappointing that he has to use four wheels. No, he was driving driving around the one-way system. And then this one, this was a really good one. Um, I hope I'm not making it up, but I feel like he's quite, quite original, this person. Sam Ryder oh. in a vintage, beautiful old vintage red car, in the South Side car park, on the <laughs> South Side shopping. <laughs> oh, I am both uplifted because I love Sam Ryder and disappointed yes. about him being in the South Side car park. <laughs> I know, it's quite something. He was going all the way to the top, and I think it was because he didn't want anyone near his beautiful car. So he was parking on the empty because I never go to the top. I always go to the bottom. Don't you? Well, see, if you were James's mum, Grandma Prue, yes. lovely Grandma Prue, who loves an autograph and a car, you'd have followed him up there, wouldn't you, and been stood next to him as he got out for an autograph. Probably, and then wanted to stroke his lovely long hair. Yes, oh, we love that. Oh, good, well done, Stars in Cars, it's a new thing. Tell us, everybody, send us your Stars in Cars. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy. And I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, via fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness, careers, relationships, caring for elderly relatives and your finances. Yes, we ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. Well, we have got quite a different and unusual episode lined up for you today, haven't we, Trish? Because uh, we do like to change things up a bit and surprise you on this podcast every now and again. Stand by your beds, people. Hold on to something firm. Today, we have only gone and invited a witch as a guest. She'll be at Postcards from Midlife Towers telling us all sorts of spooky things. I'm going to sing, Trish. Da, 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 da. <laughs> What's that? Tales of the Unexpected. Yes, we, yes. We're going to bring some tales of the unexpected. <laughs> I ex- we often do, in fact. But as always, there is some sensible thinking behind our moments of madness or moments of magic, as we're calling them today. 
Besides, she isn't just any old witch. Uh, she is Tree Carr, and she has been crowned the Queen of Britain's new witch scene by Sunday Times style, no less. And as we know, the pagan ideas behind witchcraft celebrate elder women or the wiser women, which we like. To, well, exactly, we like to think we are all, all becoming older and wiser in midlife. Um, so that's the link. And also, Lorraine and I have been chatting a lot recently about this kind of adopting of a more curious mindset in midlife, opening up our thinking. So today we're opening up our thinking to the world of witches and magic, as it's a growing scene, as they call it, as they say in the UK. It is indeed. There's even witch talk, Trish, which is a version of TikTok. I don't have to explain TikTok to you again, do I? No. (laughs) (laughs) Witch Talk has had 40 billion, I said billion, views on social media. There's a new Netflix documentary coming out in the autumn called Lost Magic. Um, So we are obviously uh, your midlife investigative journalists and we thought we'd probe further into the world of magic and ask what it actually means for women in midlife because most of these witches, as it said in the the piece in the Sunday Times, are midlife women. But do you remember back to your hedonistic party days of the 90s because uh, everyone was having a tarot card done at that point, I seem to recall. And uh, lots of witches. And mostly to yes. talk about our love lives, wasn't it? It was mostly about why am I still single? Yeah, I think it was. But witches, they've been with us since tiny wee children, haven't they? Because they're in all our stories growing up. You know, when you have to do Macbeth, be your own level English. <laughs> yes. Those witches in that Roman Polanski film, I'm telling you, they frightened the bloody life out of me. I didn't really do the 90s. I'm not sure about that. I did I did do oh. a crystal ball on the end of a pier once, and that was quite a <laughs> Well, you didn't go to raves, did you? Well, I did, but I don't remember any witchiness. Did you not? Well, I went to Big Green Gathering and things like that, oh, and there was okay. always some kind of tent with some witchy shenanigans going on. Um, but I think maybe this idea is sort of linked to slowing down, removing stress from our lives and making time to be spiritual. I guess that's it. I mean, we we laugh, but there is a sense of us being more curious in midlife. And there could be some things in all of this. When I researched my book, there was a scientific element to how our brain changes in midlife. Uh, There's an author called Jonathan Rausch, who's quite a big investigative journalist in the States, and he'd written a book called The Happiness Curve. In it, he'd quoted studies which say that our neurology does change as we age and we open up a more creative part of our brain so we can become more optimistic and therefore more open to spiritual ideas and open to discussing them. And I was reading a survey in Psychology Today which said a daily spiritual experience, whatever that means to you, may offset stress, provide a buffer against depression and promote human flourishing. So whatever we think, and I think, um, Gen X, bit cynical about anything spiritual. Um, There's possibly something positive in it. And that's what we wanted to discuss, wasn't it? This idea of finding spiritual moments. And it might mean having your tarot done, which makes you think about things, which makes you feel a bit more spiritual and it's a little bit uplifting, bit of an awakening, Trish. It actually ties into, if you've all listened to last week's episode with Donna Lancaster, Mm. about that kind of finding a a sort of spirit, more spirit-led approach to life. But it's about finding meaning and connections. And if you do that through tarot, if you do it through crystals, crystal heat, and the idea of healing and nurturing. And I think it's this idea of you know, this new modern witchcraft, which Tree will come on and tell us about, obviously, it's all about positivity. It's not about yeah. hearses, not the scary <laughs> stuff from those books. So. No. But you had um, this uh, ties in, doesn't it? You've had a bit of a, a, a magical 
some magical moments and coincidences. Do you want to tell everybody about those? Well, in in the week that we had our tarot read before tree. So we've had our tarot read before uh, tree coming on so that we could chat about that, which we'll do in a minute. I had three happenings, which were very strange, which in my previous slightly more rigid mindset, I would just ignored. So the, the phrase, there's no such thing as a coincidence, came to me from three women that I was not going to see in that week, but three women who are really important in my life, um, generally as friends and kind of elders and guide, yeah. guides, as it were. So I went swimming with one of my lovely women, Claudia, and uh, she doesn't live in London. She had just one night and she said, oh, I want to go to the Lido. Will you come? And I thought, how lovely. I've got a bit of a thing in my head about what I do next. I'm feeling a bit discombobulated. I was feeling really weird last week. <laughs> went swimming with Claudia and she said, well, you know, maybe this and this could happen because there's no such thing as a coincidence. Next day, I get a little text from my friend Kalanit, who says, uh, I have some free time gloriously tomorrow morning. Do you want to have a swim, have a coffee? And I thought, how amazing. I can ask Kalanit why I'm feeling so odd, blah, blah, blah. Go and have my little coffee with her in the sunshine. She says, well, all of these things are tied up because there's no such thing as coincidence. And I the thought, very well, same word. that's weird. It gets mm. weirder, Trish. You're going to get goosebumps. I'll go back on my bike to cycle home. And my lovely friend Nadia has been in the country. She lives in LA now, but she's been in the country for three weeks and we have failed and failed and failed to meet. And she's the kind, we had her on the show. She's a yeah. spiritual yoga teacher. I'm on my little bicycle thinking, shame I haven't seen Nadia crossing the road in front of me. Honestly, there that she was yes. on the way to her dentist. So I stop and say, hi, <laughs> that's so weird. I've just felt, so, had such a weird week. And she said, oh, well, you were meant to see me because there's no such thing uh. as coincidence. <laughs> so I would normally have uh, ignored that, but I didn't. I listened to it this week. You were open to it. And it's about giving your, your mind, yourself a little bit of space and a little bit of time. And you were able to go for that uh, swim and that coffee yes. and that little bike ride, weren't you? And I think just being open, looking up, looking out, and I think it's also about recognising how powerful the, these women are in our lives, aren't they? Our friends mm. and what they bring us. And you need that. You need that yeah. energy. And I think, well, yeah. I like that. That's good. We're going to be saying that all the time now. Yes. Well, I um, popped it on my social media because obviously yeah. I can't do anything without an enormous audience. No, around audience. Me, Trish, as yes. you know. <laughs> um, and I wrote, follow, you can follow the logic in life, which is great, and we should, but also you could follow the magic, which is what happens a little bit more in midlife. And I was inundated underneath in the comments by loads yeah. of stories of women who had had, had gone through a kind of a, an awakening of listening, really. And that's what they were saying, listen is what we're saying here. Slow down and listen. And that's what happens in midlife. So Sarah wrote, I'm a massive believer in all things spiritual and joining the dots, which is why I need quiet time and nature daily to be able to listen. Yeah. That's really important. She says our gut instinct is our engine in life. And that's the thing we ignore, isn't it? Our gut instinct. Um, and a lady who runs the Curious Creative Club on Instagram said, getting nudged is what we call it. I put a random picture of the Giants Causeway on my vision board. I love a vision board, Trish. Uh, at the beginning of the year and six months into the year, a friend who was going to Northern Ireland with her daughter, who could no longer go, rang me saying, knowing nothing about my vision board, rang me and said, will you come with me? We had an amazing four day trip. Um, and she advises that we read Dr. Tara Swart's book, The Source. It's brilliant on neuroscience based books. So I'm going to be looking for that. And there were lots Ooh. of stories underneath of, of women who had these coincidences, um, as it were. Well, it's definitely a movement away from that more rigid belief system that 
anything that can't be proved or offers us some reassurance needs to be ignored because I think making those connections and finding that meaning in whatever way you can. Yes, of course, there's science, we know about that, but there is definitely different energy in the world. But you know what happened when I told Neil, the husband, about all this and us (laughs) having our tarot cards read? Did he poo-poo it? Yes or no? Firstly, yes, obviously, initial reaction. He was like, well, he said, get this, he said, it's map to ground, isn't it? Oh, it's Neil's map to ground theory. Go on, explain that. The listeners need to know this. It's map to ground and everyone knows you have to do ground to map. So he's a pilot (laughs) and one of the navigation rules of fly. I mean, I obviously had to get him to explain it to me because my brain is not built for map reading at all. But the idea is that if you look at something on the ground, like a building or a river, you'll make it fit onto the map. Right. He's claiming you the tarot is made the other to way fit. Around. Yes. And he yeah. says his phrase is, for example, you can just make Coventry into Birmingham if you're flying it. <laughs> just, oh, right, you, okay. <laughs> I was quite thinking you, of it like that. Do you know what James does? He does that. I think it's from The Fast Show. He says, there is only coincidence. <laughs> That's what it is. And then he sings, feng shui, feng shui, feng shui, what a load of crap. So. <laughs> <laughs> but then you see Neil did a bit of an about turn because he then launched into another flying story. It's all about oh my flying, God. and also World War Two because we know he's obsessed. Everybody knows he's obsessed with World War Two. Douglas Bader, do you know who he is? Yes, Reach for the Sky. Reach for the Sky, exactly. He he was a very uh, eminent pilot in uh, World War Two. He, he he actually lost his legs in the nineteen thirties. I'm sure everybody's losing the plot now, wondering what on Carry on. Carry on with Douglas Bader and uh, the witch. It's important. He said to me, oh, when I... Because he reads Reach for the Sky and watches the film about twice a month. Uh, He said, well, he had a a tarot reading, actually. What? uh, Yes, Bader had a tarot reading in the 1930s. He lost his legs. He was in the doldrums. He went to see a tarot reader. She didn't know he'd lost his legs, but she said, oh, you've been in a terrible accident. You're very damaged, but you will go on to do incredible things. And Neil says, Douglas Bader, he was the Battle of Britain. So there we go. Did you enjoy that little history lesson? I I liked that step back in time. (laughs) Thank God for Douglas Bader being a more thoughtful spiritual man. They are out there. Um, That brings us very neatly to our own tarot reading, doesn't it? So um, I think you should kick off, Trish, and tell me what Tree Car, our resident witch, said to you. Because... um, Just a little tease here. My reading involved the meaning of jellyfish and some big thinking. Oh. (laughs) Join the dots. It's not just coincidence. There's no such thing. Yeah, so I actually had my tarot done with Tree about four years ago, four or five years ago, and uh, just a short one. It was at an event. And um, she popped into my inbox about three months ago, and I'd been thinking about her. Isn't that weird? I was thinking about her. She popped in. No such thing as coincidence, exactly. Trish. And I thought, oh, she's reconnected with me. Let's get her on the show. Anyway, we decided we should do a tarot, didn't we, before she came on. And um, we actually did it on Zoom. The first time I did it was um, in real life. But these days, everything's on Zoom, isn't it? You can do anything on Zoom. And she can explain why things can work across technology. But basically, she's in her lovely room. You're in your room somewhere very peaceful and quiet. She sort of explains the tarot. It's sen- essentially, it's about making connections and thinking about people and events in your life in different ways. So it's kind of trying to understand your presence so that you can plan or predict your future a bit, but it's you sort of doing it. And we started with a meditation, didn't we? So we did a little guided meditation, breathing, 
And then she told me, she came to and she told me some kind of thoughts on what she was sensing and seeing. And she said, she saw with me a man with a wide forehead, a dog from my past and an older woman, all there standing together. And that right. was my dad, the man with the wide forehead. Oh, yes. And that's what it made me think of. Yeah. So I suppose it's about what she's sensing or what it makes you think of. And the dog and the and the dog was his dog from past blah blah blah. Anyway, so she then spreads out the cards, doesn't she, with her hands? Yeah. Normally you would pick the cards if you were there with you her. You would touch it, but, when but you she, do she it spreads on it Zoom, out. Yeah. But she spreads it out. Did she do this with you? And I was kind of watching her some of the time and Literally, the card pops out. It's mm. really weird how that happens. I don't quite know. Well, her whole body moves and the and card pops up. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't think that that's a kind of intuitive thing, isn't no. it? No. Well, she can tell us about the energy and everything that's going into that. And I got the King of Pentacles right, um, and the Four Swords. So two cards popped out. And basically, each card essentially means something, doesn't it? And there's a story attached to each. And she will talk through what that story is. And then you kind of apply it to you and what, what's kind of happening to you. And just to cut a long story short, mine was essentially about what my dad needed at this very elderly stage in his life. That's the kind of conclusions that yeah. I came to through these cards. And it was really eye-opening for me because it was about him needing me to be kind of pragmatic and also helping him go back through his life and tell his stories. I kind of came to that conclusion through these cards. And that was really moving and really powerful for me because it just gave me a chance to sort of step back and think about how I want these next, you know, months, years, however long I've got with him to be. So so that was that one. We did quite a lot of different things. We did some stuff around my son, which again was really insightful. What about you? What did you? Because yeah. yours was totally different. We totally did compare different. notes afterwards, didn't we? Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing is we're not asking at this stage uh, for someone to p pick up a card and say, this is your future. You're going to go no. and do this, blah, blah, blah. What you're saying, as you said, is joining the dot and maybe listening with a different bit of your brain to all the things that you would normally ignore. That's what exactly. it does. Really. It's just yeah. almost a trigger, isn't it, to go and think about other things in a different way that you just wouldn't normally have. So, uh, well, she said that I'd come into the room with uh, my mum. <laughs> Queen of Swords. And you were like, right, I'm leaving uh, now. Well, I don't know a Gen X woman that probably won't come into the room with <laughs> that kind of, um, yeah, Queen of Swords and, a, and a, the Five of Something, Five of Ones, which was a conflict card. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that on the podcast. Um, but what she did focus really strongly on was... She just kept saying every card that popped up meant big change, like really big Ooh. change. She said, you are exhausted. I had the Ten of Swords come up at one point, which meant career change. She said, your spark's gone. You came to the end of something. You're complete. You were completely drained of energy. And now you've got your, that feeling is ready to change. You're ready to get that teenage spark and hopefulness back. Um, and she drew the magician card. It was really weird. It was like you, it just popped up. And she said, this is a really special card. It comes when people are full of ideas and they want to get them out there and they want to make this change happen. And they will do it because people who pull the magician card are quite motivated. It's, it is making magic happen. It's that you can actually translate it like that. And I had an enormous amount of energy as a teenager. It was probably unbearable. And that has obviously gone over the years, but it's really metaphorically gone um, around my old career in journalism. So 
that was good. And she actually said, I might do something completely different. She mentioned the word charity. Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah. And okay. she said, then I, then I pulled the chariot card, which meant that it will set off at speed at some point. So okay. what it does is it really makes you think, I had had a wobbly week thinking, what, what am I? Who am I? Where will I go? What shall I do now? Obviously, love doing the podcast. Never going to stop that. But it really made me put that in a more concrete place and think, actually, do you know what? Big change is a thing that I could consider. I don't need to get drawn back into what I know and a skill that I know. And then just before she was about to go, she said, hold it. I'm seeing a jellyfish. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, oh, well, I do do a bit of swimming. And, you know, I do swim in Cornwall with a lot of jellyfish. I'm not fearful of them. And she said, oh, I've never come across a jellyfish as a kind of animal message. What does it mean? And, and I said, well, that's all we, so we looked, <laughs> I looked it up afterwards and, uh, you aren't going to believe this, Trish. I mean, I am mapped to ground, ground to map or something here, making it work. It means, uh, a jellyfish is a symbol of a wake up call. Okay. Um, and it usually means you need to get into the flow and it means change. What about that? Wow, that was so. That did make you think, didn't it? Well, it really did. I mean, it was it, it was a, it was a strange thing to go through. It's a strange experience. Mm. A tarot reading on on Zoom and watching Tree shake in her lovely room with all her long hair and uh, all very witchy. But it made me. It really made me take a step back and trust my instinct in something. I guess that's what we're saying on the podcast. Aren't yes. we? we're saying yes. Whatever it takes. Is it tarot? Is it seeing a psychic? Is it meditating? Is it swimming? Whatever it is, it's a mindset shift and you've got to be listening to the things that you're told. Yes, exactly. Well, my final card was the hermit. And you know what the hermit does, don't you? Well, I'm saying nothing about you and your little (laughs) hermit ways. Something about gardening? It's a message. No, a message for my soul. Soul, it needs some solitude. Need to create some space um, and be with myself. Which is interesting because we've been doing all that chat about solo traveling. And I've been, yeah. There's been loads of posts on the Facebook group about it. And I've been kind of joining in those conversations and putting up pictures of my sister on her camel in the outback in the desert in, in Australia. <laughs> um, and it's really been on mm. my mind. So there we are, making a little connection there as well, I think. But isn't that odd how... She seemed to get both our characters. Now, you yes. could say, oh, well, she's gone on Instagram and uh, she isn't following me. I, I had a check and she's looked and she's seen our characters. But I don't, I think that would be a really cynical way to approach yeah. it, wouldn't it? But she, th- that is very clearly you. And this, yes. I would never go on a, I would never pull the hermit card. That's not going to happen, is it? So interesting. Well, we should get ready to talk to Tree about it, shouldn't we? Yes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now it's time for the magic to really happen. 
We hope that you will open your minds and your hearts to listeners as we are now joined by Tree Carr. Tree, aged 50, is a high priestess witch and master of Wicca. She's a tarot scholar, a dreaming guide and a death doula. She's the author of several books, including Dreams, How to Connect with Your Dreams to Enrich Your Life and A Spell a Day, 365 Spells, Rituals and Magics for Every Day. She also hosts TED Talks and workshops across the UK, Europe and North America to help people explore the liminal world of dreaming and healing. Her life's work has been dedicated to healing, guiding, supporting and helping people to find deeper, more meaningful connections with the world and beyond. Oh, and she uh, performed with an iconic pop star too, because she's a bit of a musician. She says, we all have a lost magic within us wanting to be realised, and she's here today to tell us how. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife Tree. Hi, thank you for having me here. Well, firstly, we want to thank you again for our tarot readings, which we did with you last week, and we've actually just been talking about them. But to help us understand what you do and why you do it, we should probably start with your story and your upbringing, because you grew up in a commune in America, um, had slightly unusual upbringing. Can you take us back to those days in the 70s? Um, what was it like and what did you discover about yourself? Yes. So I, I am a child of the 70s. I was born in 1972. My formative years were spent on a commune, growing up with access to nature, creativity, music, we all played instruments, reading, drawing, no television, no radio, so really sheltered in terms of pop culture. So had no idea really what was going on in the world of, of pop culture. And it was also an unusual commune because it was literally a Jesus freak commune. So I did grow up with all of that unusual experiences of watching adults, you know, having these insane mystical experiences, rolling around on the ground and speaking in tongues and signs and wonders and all these sort of things. So it was a time in in the United States where a lot of people were looking for new ways of living and being. You know, this happened, uh, you know, with the hippie movement and with like uh, the Jesus people movement and all these sort of things. So lots of communes and whatnot were popping up all over the United States at that time. There were some good points to it because I felt very connected to my inner worlds, my dream worlds, imagination connected to nature, and just felt very sensitive to things that were, you know, of nature, of the human condition, of emotions, of creativity. So I felt like I was in a slightly different zone because I I wasn't really concerned with what was on television and what 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 the sort of fashions to wear and all of these sort of things. So in a way, I feel like it set me up for not having a very traditional role in society in terms of what I did, how I gave back and what I did for a living. I always felt like I knew that, you know, I wasn't going to be a nine to five traditional type of person because it felt like my skill sets were were definitely in the zones of creativity, spirituality, and unusual states of consciousness. Did you leave the commune when you, in your teenage years then? How did you, did you come away from it? Did you reject the kind of Christian Jesus element of it? What happened? Well, it was more my family moved away from it. So in the late 70s, an event called the Jonestown Massacre occurred, and that had a, a massive effect on my family. 
you know, how they decided to move forward with having a family and that sort of setup. When it happened, when Jonestown happened, it deeply, deeply affected them. You know, that was a big pivotal moment of leaving. So then you went through, like you were a musician originally, and then you have come to us today as a, what you call a modern witch, which I think is a lovely phrase. I think it's probably worth telling our listeners what a witch is, a modern witch is, and what it is not, because there's so much confusion, isn't there? There is a lot of confusion. And I started following the path of of the witch as a teenager because, you know, all these exceptional experiences of the mystical have always followed me through life. And as a teenager, that's when I started to really lean into it and really identify with being a witch. So a witch has a lot of connotations. There's a lot of fear around the word. In fact, we've been given a lot of examples of witches in Disney movies and horror films and literature. And so and they ha- used to be burned, witches used to be burned. So there's a patriarchal hatred of the witch. Yeah. Power of a woman. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So we, we are still uh, recovering from that, that hangover from the early, early modern period. But, but a witch effectively, the word witch comes from the old English word wicca, which means wise ones. And the witches were the wise women of the community who are there to offer support and healing bring life into the world with as midwives and even at end of life as death midwives helping people transition and everything in between. They're almost like the ancient therapists and and doctors and healers. And of course, there were a lot of cunning folk and people who worked in charms and, and worked in the mystical. And when the early modern period came about between 1400 and all the way up actually to 1782, there were up to 60,000 people executed for witchcraft, burned at the stake. And roughly 80% of these people were women, and they were women over the age of 40. So there were clear manifestos at that time that were heavily focused on the evils of women, and particularly women of a certain age. Older women. Yeah, you've only got to read any Margaret Atwood to work out (laughs) what was going on there. And it was absolutely horrific, wasn't it? I mean, you know, we it's not just women, but it's women of power and huge events blamed on these midlife women. (laughs) And really getting down to the specifics, like this is what a witch looks like with caricatures of older women who are older and wrinkly and have sagging breasts and have facial hair. And and so we get these tropes, these, these caricature tropes that are still used in Disney films. So it goes back to these times where women were literally pointed out in their communities and brought to trial because a lot of them were landowners and they they were powerful women. And it was a way of grabbing their land as well by executing them. And it was also because of the, the rise of the religious wars in Europe at the time too. These things were seen as being connected to the devil and working with uh, Satan. But it was literally just women who had the beliefs of nature, the power of nature, intuition, and they just worked in these magical crafts that have been around for thousands of years. It's like the original uh, spirituality. (laughs) So we are still suffering from the hangovers of the deeply misogynistic manifestos and the witch trials. So that's why people go, oh, she's such a witch, you know, she's older, or she's a Karen, or this idea of menopause as well is like, ew, gross, and women 
past their sell-by date and they're not desirable anymore. The modern witch is, is bringing that back, isn't it? There's there's a lot of them now and they're, they're midlife women, aren't they? Bringing the power of the midlife woman That's back. That's it. It's, it. I mean, we're talking about midlife, so you would assume this would rise up alongside it anyway, wouldn't yes. you? Yes. It's claiming it. It's coming back to that. It's also trying to heal from the witch wound, which all women hold within them. Even if you don't identify as a witch, you hold that witch wound in you because it's it was an extermination of a gender. It was it was very focused on exterminating a, a gender. So it's it we're all affected by it. So yes, being a modern witch is stepping back into the power, into this power claiming it. It's like when we started claiming back the word bitch back in the nineties. So now we're moving a layer a little layer deeper and connecting back to the power of our inner witch. So yes. What is a modern witch? What is it that you do? So because I followed this path and I've decided, you know, that this is a big part of my life. I was a a witch in the broom closet for a very long time because why bother people with these esoteric thoughts and feelings and also experiences? It's my own path. But uh, when I turned 40, it was very clear for me to step out in service. And that all just happened through a lot of various synchronistic events. And so for the past uh, 10 years, I've been holding space for people in a a caring community way through the various things that I do. And so part of stepping into uh, being a modern witch, for me, it was stepping into that and stepping into the role of service and also as a role as uh, uh, being initiated as a high priestess. But people can step into their inner witch, even if you're not like deciding to follow this sort of path. You can just connect to that wound within you that has been repressed by a dominator culture of the patriarchy that has told you that your body is evil, that you're you're not desirable unless you're beautiful and young. You should be subservient and, you know, a good girl. And so it's connecting to that wound, understanding it, and trying to transcend it and say, you know, I want to feel empowered. I want to be confident with who I am and not be pushed down by the mores. If you say witches, you think, well, how am I going to find a witch? <laughs> I mean, obviously, I would find one on social media. But I mean, <laughs> a kind of, uh, So you're a high priestess and you're in a coven. How, do you fi- how did you find a coven in the UK? So the coven experiences um, happened for me in my 40s. And it's really interesting because I was actually approached by a coven just through word of mouth through various people. I had had a few sort of like very long phone calls, almost like interviews with one of the high priestesses of this coven in London. And then after that was like, yeah, come and join in and sit in with a few meetings um, or join a few soirees. What do you do in the meetings? So in the meetings, I sat with um, a few of the high priestesses and other folks who were initiates and also just magical folks interested in sitting in magical space. And a lot of it was discussion, a lot of discussions. And so these are two pretty prominent uh, witches in London who go back uh, notoriously back to the 1960s and 70s as being quite legendary witches and high priestesses in their own right. And so through that process of sitting with them, I never initiated into that coven because um, I'm, I'm more on um, a path of the Wiccan path rather than the Alexandrian path of witchcraft, I, you know, moved into my own in- initiation. So as a high priestess, I now I have my own group of women that that meet with me, and I do it online so that more people can 
can join in from everywhere. And the point of entry in the coven that I run online is working with the moons. So that's a really nice point of entry working with the new moon and the full moon. Because a lot of people can relate to that because the moon is tangible. You see it in the sky. The moon <laughs> sends you mad as well. It sends you a bit bonkers <laughs> yeah. for a day, doesn't it? I go a bit loopy-loo. It is. And it's a really good time to sort of like have a self-care moment, you know, every 14 days in these moon space covens that I run. So, yeah, the, everyone gets there in different ways in terms of meeting a witch. And, and, and some of you hearing this, Podcasts probably say, I know a witch, or I know my auntie sort of was a bit witchy, yes. or my grandmother was slightly witchy, but it's all kept hush-hush, right? It's so taboo, like no one dares speak about their abilities or their intuitive nature or their connection to home remedies and herbs. Like it's all, even still, people just in hushed tones, yes, my great aunt was a witch. You know? It's so it's funny how it's taboo still. But spells and rituals are very much part of being a modern witch, aren't they? And your new book, which we've mentioned already, is Spell a Day. There's 365 spells, rituals and magics for every day. So one for every day of the year. We'd love for you to tell us about what kind of spells, maybe suggest a couple that might be useful for our midlife listeners in their in their worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Spells are interesting because we're always casting them constantly and we're unaware that we're doing it. Like from the power of our words, you know, our words can affect change. And, and one of the principal laws of magic is the law of contagion and the cause and effect of all things. And science proves that too. Everything that, that you do has, it's a cause and, it, and an effect will come in. There's no such thing as a coincidence. Right? So these things are part of the magical cosmology. And so spells and spell work is. And that's just simply by putting your intention towards an outcome or a goal connected with your will and intention and your emotional energy through an external ritual can bring something into your life. So this is part of the path of a magical person. And yeah, so I do have a spell in my book for midlife. And Never. it is a menopause spell. Good, good. Yay. And it's a menopause Great. spell for relief. And as you know, like we're all kind of going through it. <laughs> this is for when you're moving through perimenopause and menopause into your wisdom years. And, you know, of course, with this new chapter, it can bring about, you know, uncomfortable sensations and symptoms like our hot flashes and our mood swings and our brain fog. So I've created a spell potion that helps alleviate these symptoms. So I've brought in a lot of my witchy knowledge of like working with various herbs that help through the menopause and witches have, and, and just women in general have been using certain herbs for thousands of years to, to help with the change. And so with this spell, it's also a bit of a self-care ritual. So you you create a, a potion with really great menopause herbs that include red clover, motherwort, and black co-wash. And so I instruct uh, the person to create this potion as a tea. And then after this, there's a, a guided meditation as well as a ritual around flushing away your symptoms that involves a bowl of water, some salt in the bowl of water, also a candle. And so, yeah, I've got it in my new book. And, you know, you can repeat it as much as you want. 
But part of the, you know, the menopause journey as a witch is bringing in balance, mind, body, spirit, like all three levels of, of oneself and working very closely with um, plants and, and herbal allies that can help balance that out too. When you were younger, were you a different kind of witch to the midlife witch you are now? How, what, have you had a sort of sudden surge of power? <laughs> yeah, magic? that's a really good question. When I was a teenager, I identified as a dream witch. So I did a lot of my work in the realms of lucid dreaming and astral projection. And also, my precognition was also evolving and blossoming. So I considered myself a seer in a sense, but I would never dare say that to anyone because I do still feel a little bit funny saying that, like, I'm clairvoyant. And, you know, because I do believe we all have deep intuition. And I think it gets really kind of show busy and slightly snake oil salesman and cheesy sometimes when people are like, I am a psychic and I'm a psychic medium. So, but I do believe we all have these abilities to tune in and and sense. So when I was younger, I really strongly identified with that. As I started to grow older, I started to identify with the plants and the herbs and working a lot and understanding and getting to know as much as I could about this wonderful plant kingdom that we have around us. And then as I evolved even further into, you know, the 21st century, I identify as a tech witch now too, because I use technology as tools for, you know, witchcraft and spell casting and having conversations with the universe, so on and so forth. So as a witch, anything external to you can be used as a tool. And we see it through the thousands of years of the timeline of a magical history from people using bones and stones, casting them for divination to pools of water, to coffee grinds and tea leaves, you know, and tarot cards. And now we have these external tools of our mobile phones and modern technology. So I use those, I identify as a tech witch. So you mentioned about dreaming. I mean, because obviously this time of life as well, sleep is so important and so difficult. It's such, such, I mean, it has a huge impact at any point in your life. You know, it affects you psychologically. You can have nightmares, repetitive dreams, insomnia, sleep paralysis. What is the work you do around dreams and how is that helpful? So I've always loved the dream realms. And some of my earliest memories are actually of dreams that I had as a child, lucid dreams and whatnot. So lucid dream is the style of dream where you're having a dream and something unusual happens within a dream, like an elephant shows up and it grows wings and starts flying before you. And in the dream itself, you are like, this can't be happening. This is unusual. And you wake up in the dream. So you become very conscious and aware. And you are like, this is a dream. And you're fully immersed in the dream, almost like a virtual reality. And then you can start controlling the dream or co-creating with the dream. And it can get very mind-blowing. And it's so transformative. And so with sleep and dreams, I find it very important because we spend a very large portion of our life asleep and dreaming. And our consciousness continues even though we're sleeping, albeit in an altered state of deep rest. And whatever comes through in the dreams are just as valid as anything that comes through in our waking life. So it's being able to to embrace that our dreams are not just junk data and silly reveries every night. It's like they hold valuable information. And in fact, we really looked to the dreams in the past as 
human beings for guidance. And we've lost that disconnect as we moved into the industrialization of our modern society. But also they hold psychological value and value for our balancing our emotions and our well-being. And sleep, biologically, super important too, because we need the rest. We need to repair our bodies in deep rest and deep sleep and understand our sleep cycles. So I love science, you know, like even though people are like, oh, you're a witch, you must be woo-woo. And I'm like, actually, I'm not woo-woo at all. <laughs> like I, I'm very rooted in science. I, I love that part of the reality of, of observation and empirical data. And literally science is magic that works. So science and magic I see should be actually married. And often the mystics get there first uh, with an idea or a revelation and the science backs it up eventually. So it's about neurology sleep, isn't it? It's about the changes of your brain patterns as you're in a deep rest state, isn't it? So it's conscious, subconscious. It is. It's brainwave. It's brainwave-led. Yeah. And everything is brainwaves are effectively um, the indicators of what is happening in our uh, our consciousness, like what what state of reality, what state of consciousness we're in. So like, for example, when we're awake, it's the beta brainwave and we're sending our emails and making our lists. We're very much in the thinking mind. And also the beta brainwave is connected to high states of anxiety or overthinking. And so when we want to slow down our brainwaves to be more chill, we go into the theta brainwave, for example, everyone's trying to get there when they meditate or relax or go into nature when we sleep, that we're going into those slower brain waves. And when you're in the slower brain waves, it's the flow state. So you're able to get the unconscious material up to the surface to review. You could have mystical experiences. You can tap into non-ordinary states of consciousness. It's that flow state, that flow wave that I call dropping into the zone where I can receive insights, say, about a person if I'm in a session with them or some sort of like psychic insight or some sort of intuitive hit. It's a supercomputer, isn't it? The brain It's processing external stuff you might not consciously see. It's still processing it, isn't it's it? It's processing it. It's there. It's like tapping into a field or something in that beautiful theta brainwave. So there's science behind all of that. you know. So when people say, how did they get that information? It must be some supernatural woo-woo thing. It's like, no, actually, it's just slowing your brainwaves down to be able to feel into the situation. And we could pick these things up as human beings. We have great potential of, of doing that. But we live in a mm. society that heralds the thinking mind more. And how do we use our dream? How do we process them? I had one a couple of weeks ago. It was a lucid dream. And it was, it was a little bit of a nightmare, actually. It felt like an internal scream. And I woke up feeling like this scream was inside me. And it just sat with me all day. I didn't know what to do with it. It's just <laughs> kind of like carried on with my day and went to someone's barbecue yeah. and you know but I had this feeling I was like oh my god this scream is inside of me it's like mad thanks for sharing that that is uh, a gift a gift from your unconscious that's letting you know that there's something to process probably maybe it's anger or frustration but maybe feel into what actually you were feeling in that scream and it's a chance to regulate something in your waking time to say, you know what, I really think I need to channel some of this anger or frustration. Maybe I could, you know, do a workout or maybe I'll go for uh, a primal screen therapy or, you know, there could be something there that wants to, to be heard. Blockage. A blockage, right? And it's interesting with menopause and midlife because this is like a, a general theme with women our age. Like, like it's funny you said that because a couple of weeks ago I had a lucid dream 
too that involved like screaming in this rage. And I woke up and went, right, I need to um, get back into the yoga and just started like <laughs> oh, and processing yeah. the fire that's in there. So the dreams can give us great messages and guidance. So you need to sit with them, don't you? Um, I wrote a piece about having a parasomnia type dream where someone was in the room sitting on me, pushing me into the bed. Um, and I got quite a big response from midlife women saying they'd had similar dreams. So a psychic would say that is someone that's a spirit led thing. Or, But I think that perhaps dreams in midlife are really important and you do need to process. Would it help to write them down? Is that a helpful tool? Oh, yeah, that's a wonderful tool. And writing your dreams down are like the blueprints of your unconscious mind. So if you, if you, you took up a challenge of writing your dreams down for like a whole month, for example, every day for a month, you can look back at those dreams over a month and really get to know what's going on under the hood of the car. So it's deeply fascinating to see what's happening with yourself and the unconscious. You might see patterns too, like, oh, I keep having stress dreams about work. So it could be giving you big messages about like, is work aligning with, with me right now? Maybe there's something I could bring in to help balance that, or perhaps I should change my career. So yes, it helps a lot to write your dreams down. Definitely. And then another part, a big part of your work tree is as a death doula. Now, we all know that in Western society, we're really not very good around death, are we? I'm terrified. I can't even think about it. It's one of my nightmares, death constantly around me. But we fight it to the bitter end through medicine, don't we? And we fear it. But what are your thoughts? Well, first, I'd like to address the fear of death. And it's totally normal to have that Lorraine. Like a lot of us have that. <laughs> We're scared to death of death. It's almost like this yes. weird conundrum. Yes. Yes. And I really think that most of us hold a deep fear of death because we're not allowed to express our feelings around it. It's it's swept under the carpet. It's a taboo. It's not really taught in schools or education, the reality of this thing that's inevitable. And we skirt around the topic. It's not exactly a very popular dinner party conversation, is it? Ultimately, as we start to bring um, it to the light through having more conversations, positive conversations about how we feel about it, in safe spaces and learn about it in educational systems, I think that that will help us fear it less. We've, we've become disconnected from the life-death-rebirth cycle that is part of nature. I think it's because we're in the industrialized West and we do have an obsession with youth and we do have an obsession with go, go, go and like live forever, immortality for whatever reason, because of the system that we set up. But you look at other systems like the East, people have more or less of a fear of death because it's it's more on the radar, culturally, culturally more on the radar and within family units. But in the West, it's become very medicalized. So when people are sick or ill, they go to the hospital or hospice and they die. It's all hush-hush behind closed curtains, bodies taken away. It's all very sanitized. And we, we have a, a disconnect from the physicality of it as well. Well, I'm worried about the last minutes of death, how that's going to be. <laughs> that's it. Trish has to death counsel me about once a week because I think, well, how am I going to die? How will those last few seven or eight minutes be? I, it feels very unfair. Well, it's good to sit with this reality. So do you think about your own death then? Do you think how that might be? Have you 
thought it through. Oh, yes. You sound very enthusiastic. Well, I think for me, it goes way back because I had a near-death experience at the age of four years old when I was very small and I nearly drowned and I was saved. And in that moment of the near-death experience, I felt like all of those feelings right clasping at life just you know trying to survive and then a sense of surrender and a sense of actually concern for my parents more than anyone that they would never find my body in the ocean and all of these sort of things at a young age so i feel like i kind of experienced it when i was 4 and to answer your question i think of my own death every single day the reason being i'm not like not in a morbid way not because like i'm some sort of goth that listens to you know i want yeah. i'm obsessed <laughs> with you know death no i sit with death every day and my own death every day because it makes me live better it makes me so connected more to this amazing and fleeting experience called life so it's very enriching in many ways. And it does make me feel better about my last moments because I'll feel like I lived a life that had meaning, purpose, and made a difference, hopefully, to people that are in my sphere. But how does it make you feel true about your loved ones? Because that's the other fear. And I know you recently or fairly recently lost your sister, didn't you? So it's different. Very different. So death, we often think, oh, it's like this personal concern, you know? But actually, it is, um, a, it's a collective issue because after you die, there are people left behind who are also moving through the bereavement. It's a topic that you know has its reverberations. So uh, accepting your own death can, can feel like, well, that's just to be, it could just be like falling asleep. And it's just this transition that I experience every single night when I'm on the threshold of sleep. In fact, I, I guide people in sessions who have fear of death on how to do exercises every night to feel more comfortable, you know, with the process of dying. But having to answer your question, it is very difficult in terms of feeling like, okay, well, you know, when I die, how will my loved ones feel? And how will they feel? I feel for them. I feel my heart for them. So knowing that little nugget of information makes me very, very present with my loved ones Whenever they jump into my mind, I get in touch. I make sure I keep my connections with people I love there. I make sure I don't keep bitterness or resentment. I try to heal and mend bridges. I try to keep communication flowing. I try to show love as much as I can and big love. That's my big motto, you know? The grief of someone you've lost. Because most of us at this life stage, you know, it's friends, it's family, it's parents. It's happening, right? It's happening. And in midlife, you'll start to see it happening more and more. And as we care for aging parents and for myself, my sister died a year ago and she was way too young to die. And the grief is insane. Like, it's like, what is going on? You just never feel anything like that. And you move through so many different phases, feeling like a part of you died, feeling an existential, like, who am I? What am I all about? And feeling anger and also feeling depressed some days, you know? And I think in moving through the zone of grief, it's really important to know that it's not linear. Like, it's not going to be like, oh, next year at this time, I'm going to be better. It, grief doesn't work in a linear fashion. It's, it's like grief will always be like this hard stone that's stuck in your heart. But know that in the middle of that hard stone is pure love. Because what is grief? It is the feeling of the absence of connection of love 
to the person that we so dearly loved, but know that you're st- you still hold them within your heart. And what happens is as you move through your grief, you grow around that little hard nugget. You grow around, you expand around. And as you move through it, you'll have these really affirming moments too, where you feel like your loved one sort of makes themselves present in some kind of way. Now, I'm not asking anyone to believe in any kind of cosmology that supports like, oh yeah, there's life after death. This can happen for people who are completely atheists or material reductionists. And you could still get the sense of closure when a song comes on that your loved one really loved, or they come through in a dream and you're like, you wake up feeling like, oh, I hugged them in the dream. Something reminds you of them in some kind of way through a synchronicity. So I think that we still keep on keeping on. And there are so many ways that the grief can just make us love more and make us more present and make us live better. And you have talked in the past, when you talk about this uh, awakening, this reckoning that happens when someone dies or when you hit midlife, that you didn't have the calling to have children. So you're you've been in a relationship for, for over 30 years, but you don't have children. How did that feel when you headed towards the menopause and through that stage when that's it, it's gone, the time has gone for where that could be a possibility? How do you come to terms with that as a witch? Yeah, so it's so interesting as women because we have these choices that we can make with our bodies and create a human. <laughs> so it's like, I know it's just so interesting. So, but I always knew since I was very young that I was a that I didn't feel called to have children. It was very strongly intuitive to me, probably from the age of eight, nine years old, even before puberty. I just felt very, very, very strongly that it just, that just wasn't my path. And how we know these things, I don't know. I don't know why or how we know these things. And even through my really like juicy years, when I'm probably at my most fertile, I never felt like turning to my partner and going, oh, let's try. Or I felt, you know, felt, felt like this biological kind of like, surge to do that. And my partner's been, was really like, I'm cool with whatever. So he never felt like there was never any pressure. But of course, we get pressure from other fam- other fa- society and other family members. Well, we're defined by whether we're mothers or not mothers. That's such a huge definition of woman. It's huge. And it's funny that people have an opinion on what you should, should do with your body. Everyone's got an opinion. It's infuriating. Oh my God. So, you know, I get people who are just saying you should, re- you should do, you, you should really, and I'm like, that's none of your business actually. And I even had doctors and GPs, you know, saying like, why don't you have any children? Like that is so rude. Like just, <laughs> okay, so okay, rude. of course, male doctors, right? Yeah. But also why don't you have any children? Like I'm, I'm like, I'm supposed to like, cause just cause I have a, a womb, I'm supposed to do that. But also it's extremely rude because some people don't have children because they can't. For a doctor yeah. to say that is really like yes. not cool. Oh, <laughs> it wow. can be triggering because yeah. I have a lot of friends who tried, tried, tried miscarriage, miscarriage and lost the opportunity to have a child. So, you know, it's very, very sensitive area. But when I started moving into like, okay, my period's winding down, I never felt like, oh, I, I should have had a kid and I, I missed the boat. Because it was always within me since I was very young that I wouldn't have children. Now, we can see all the instruments. You've talked about your very musical upbringing. Now, we know that you performed with a bit of an iconic pop star. 
Yeah. So the pop star that you were speaking of from the 1980s is Adam Man, who's an ab- who's an absolute legend. Yay! Who lives very near near where I live. We see him often in the high street. Oh, amazing! <laughs> yeah, he's uh, an absolute legend, and that just happened through strange osmosis. Really, I had been playing in bands uh, to varying degrees for like 10 years in London, part of the London, you know, music scene, and and this opportunity came up. He needs some backing vocals and also some session musicians for his ne- his latest album. So it was his album that came out, I think it was 2010. And so I played um, various instruments on that album and did some backing vocals. And I, I did quite a few gigs with him too. And a lot of rehearsing in the studio, a lot of the, set, a lot of the studio recordings and got to know Adam. And uh, yeah, he's like kind of a mad genius, but he's... Um, a force of nature, let's just say that. Let's say that, yes. <laughs> now, before we let you go, Tree, can I ask you, we have a podcast cat, Trish's cat, Margot, and obviously they do figure quite a lot around the whole witch's story. Now, I'm a very anti-cat person, but Margot loves me. <laughs> She's very annoying when I'm around. What, uh, what's the cat significance? Is she... Is uh, Trish there some kind of witch thinking spirituality between Margot, who who is quite unpleasant sometimes? She does do the old poo and your precious things, doesn't she? Trish, <laughs> tell us what the Margot message is. Is there a familiar? Do you have familiars? Is that what they're called? The creatures that witches are companions with they are called familiars. Cats are often the go-to one that we've seen in a long history of, with illustrations and whatnot. So cats connect, and, and other animals too, so not, it's just not just cats, but cats have uh, an intuitive, sensitive nature to them. Do they? And also working closely with a familiar, you have a symbiotic relationship with your familiar and they can go and do your bidding or they can bring you information <laughs> and also which is do work in the realms of the astral which are the realms of out-of-body states and remote viewing and you can do this through your familiar as well i could send Margot to st jo- to <laughs> north <laughs> london Pay you a little visit. <laughs> well, I welcome that. Oh. Tree, you have been absolutely fascinating. You, a lot of it makes so much um, sense. You bring a really spirited, lovely energy. I wish the listeners could feel you and see you because oh. it's a, a real warmth coming from you over the Zoom screen. Thank you very much. Uh, we will look out for your book um, and everyone should follow you on Instagram as well because you do put some of your music there. So thanks for coming to Postcards from Midlife. Oh, thanks, Lorraine. Thank you, Trish. It was so nice to see you both again. If you'd like to get in touch with Lorraine and I, there are plenty of ways that you can do it. Why not send us an email at hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or direct message us at postcardsfrommidlife on Instagram. We always enjoy hearing from you, our lovely listeners, and we'll respond to as many of your queries as we can. And you can also join us on our private Facebook group, which is a forum for women to discuss the issues that affect us as we navigate this midlife. All you have to do to join is answer three of young Trish's questions to gain access to the group, where you'll find information and friendly support to help you make the most of your second act. Well, all that witchcraft, talk of witching, wasn't it brilliant? 
so magical good. moments. I really do recommend a bit of dream interpretation or tarot reading if you do want to dabble. So thank you, Tree, for all of that wonderful information. Now, I know you liked singing this last time. Should we do it again? Go on then. Nostalgia noodle. Oh, we'll never get a job in radio, oh, that, Trish. That's the end of our woman's hour. That, that segment there is the end of our woman's hour. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to sort of double down, but double back on one. We've done it before, but I've got an update. It says a nostalgia noodle update. So do you remember our chat about caramel? Oh, that lovely sugar, the ultimate ultra-processed food. <laughs> You can't guess it anymore, can you? It was a sort of almost like a very sickly, toffee-flavoured chocolate bar that I absolutely used to love back in the old days. There's not much toffee we can eat anymore because no. I worry about my teeth. But oh, I do no, like exactly. that toffee flavour. That's what I'm missing in my life. In a chocolate bar. Well, I found one for you. <gasps> so excited. I was at my friend's house and had dinner. She popped out a couple of little... Uh, Chocolate bars, co-op, irresistible range. This is not a paid advertisement. Co-op, irresistible. <laughs> co-op, irresistible. Go on, range. show me your chocolate. Cre- I've got one here. You're going to be upset because you're you're on the other side of London. We're doing this on Zoom. It's a creamy and velvety blonde chocolate. Oh. And guess what it tastes like? Does it taste like, yeah, blonde chocolate would be a caramac? It tastes like caramac. Yes. So if anybody wants a little uh, trip down memory lane on their taste buds, you can get a bar of that. What do you think? Well, it means that I will have to shift away from the other thing that you introduced me to, which has added oh, 48 inches to my thighs. Those chocolate, bi- ultra chocolate biscuits from Marks yes. and Spencers that are just yes. really a tiny bit of biscuit yes. with an enormous amount of chocolate in, which I've been quaffing. It's like a shortcake chocolate ring, I think it's called yeah. or something, isn't it? Yeah, we had, I bought those for Postcast Midlife Live to sustain us, <laughs> but it started off a, a bit for you. You it? always bring the snacks. That's like what I snack. love about you. Let's have a, we should have a little nostalgic snack bag to take with yeah, us everywhere. Definitely. That's my plan, yes. All right, I'm off to the co-op to get one of those. Are there any co-ops in North London? I don't know. Of course, they're all in mini. It's time to say goodbye uh, after one of our more unusual, I would say. We did have a psychic uh, last season, didn't we? But, we did. Uh, we, we might be the first podcast to do a, a witch, maybe. I don't know. Well, the maybe. mainstream. There's mainstream probably a whole podcast. host of witch podcasts we're going to find. It's the first the hugely <laughs> successful, much listened to yes, podcast exactly. to do this Multi-million thing. Anyway, downloaded. it's time for us to go off and be magical somewhere else, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 